The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Before we get started, just let me say a word of thanksgiving. I want to let you know how much I appreciate those of you that support this ministry. I've had several people contact me lately just asking, are we doing okay? You know, are our offerings okay with, you know, all that's going on? And, and I just appreciate your concern. And yes, our finances are doing just fine. I haven't noticed any difference since this whole event took place. So again, we, we appreciate those of you who give, who make what we do here possible. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's really a blessing to us. Thank you for your sacrificial giving. All right, this morning, I want to talk to us about security. Now, this COVID-19 event, I think, has threatened our security on many different fronts. For example, uh, financial security. Some people thought they had that. And all of a sudden, their businesses shut down. I mean, they thought they had all their ducks in a row. They worked, they, they got this business up and running, and now, for no fault of their own, it's shut down. Some people have been let go from their jobs because there's just no work for them because the place they work for is shut down. So their security as far as financial security, as far as job security, just vanished like that. I think this event is also threatening our national security. I I really believe this is going to put us in a cold war with China. From the start of this COVID pandemic... The worldwide spread of the virus, I think, has been mirrored by worldwide infodemic of false information and fake news spread across the media platforms. I mean, it's hard to know what is real and what is... You're just hearing so much stuff that is lies. And the news media, they're coming right out and blatantly making stuff up. And then they get caught. And then it's like, oh well, because most people don't care. And I think this fake news has caused a lot of insecurity. False information can cause a great deal of fear and insecurity because you don't really even know what's happening. Last week, our governor, Governor Blackface, Wreck-It Ralph, uh, issued a mask mandate after three months into this thing. Three months this thing's been going on. All of a sudden now, oh, now you need to wear a mask. Mandatory. The governor says, science proves that the masks slow the spread of the virus. No, that's fake news. They, science does not prove that at all. And he, he didn't cite any, any you know, studies or anything to prove that. He just says it. And we're supposed to just, oh yes, okay, we believe that. It's fake news. The mandate I think he's giving, and all the things our government is doing, are threatening our liberty. Okay? People, I think if you're awake, by now you realize this is not about a virus. Okay, it's about much more than that. And let me tell you something that I think. I think that from now until Election Day, every, we're going to see all kinds of things. The riots, the stuff that's going on, things are, it's going to be one thing after another until election because there's a huge war going on right now to try to stop Trump from being the next president or continuing his presidency. There's a video circulating the social media platforms, I saw it on Twitter last week, of a man giving a presentation to the U.S. Department of Defense. This guy is giving a lecture about the brain and a gene called VMAT2. Any of you heard of that, VMAT2? Well, he's giving this lecture to a group of men, most have suits on, some of them military uniforms, and uh, the thing about this video, many are saying this is Bill Gates giving the talk. Well, it's not Bill Gates, all right? I saw, I saw the 4K video of it that's very clear, and you can see it's not Bill Gates. I don't know who it is, but it's not him, but that's not, the, that's not the issue. The man giving the presentation talks about religion, and he shows an MRI brain scans of religious people and non-religious people, okay? And you can see the brain scan. He's pointing out the difference between the two. And he says that the inhibition of the VMAT2 gene could, over time, 
cause a person's brain to shift from a religious brain structure to a non-religious brain structure. Now, VMAT2 is apparently the scientific name for what people have termed the God gene. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. The speaker says that religious people have an overexpression of the VMAT2 gene, and they can be vaccinated against this to eliminate this behavior. And he's putting this proposal forth. The project is called FunVax. FunVax. It's a vaccine to cure religious fundamentalism. Okay? References linking genes to complex human traits such as personality type and disease susceptibility uh, around the news media, and you're hearing all these different things. But there's a book out, and I think this video probably is stemmed from this book called The God Gene. It's subtitled, How Faith is Hardwired into Our Genes by Dean Hammer. The book discusses how a variation in the VMAT2 gene plays a role in one's openness to spiritual experiences. In his book, Hammer contends that one's predisposition towards spirituality is influenced by genetic factors. More controversial, he proposes that the VMAT2 gene is one of the many potential genes that impugn on our spirituality. Hammer identifies one particular variation He goes, a change from A to C present in 28% of the alleles in his data set as a marker for the more spiritual version of the gene. Now, none of this work he's presenting has been published in scientific journals, but this is, you know, this is where they're going with this. So, you know, you hear this stuff and you say, well, is our government working on a project to vaccinate people against religious beliefs? I guess anything's possible, okay? Anything is possible. I wouldn't put it, you know. (laughs) But here's here's what I want to tell you today. They're not going to eliminate Christians with a vaccine, okay? It's not going to happen, all right? There's nothing they can do to believers to remove them from the love of God. And that's what we have to understand. Nothing that's happening in our society, in our culture, will ever separate us from the love of God. You know, the world we live in is uncertain. It's insecure right now. But believers have an unshakable security. Our salvation, our relationship with Yahweh is eternally secure. What's interesting in this video, they're talking not just about a vaccine, but they were talking about they can use a virus. They can spread a virus that will also affect this gene, so to speak. But like I said, don't worry about it, okay? Because we're secure in the love of God. I mean, you know, they're probably doing stuff like this, but, you know, we can laugh about it because it's not happening, okay? And I really think that if we're going to be productive Christians, if we're going to be the image bearers God has called us to be, we need to understand that our future is secure. And that's why understanding the security of our salvation is so important. It allows our fears to be dealt with. It gives us confidence for the tasks at hand and offers the emotional stability that we need. You know, if you understand what the Bible says about God's security, you would see that the God who saves you keeps you. So to understand our security, let's look at the closing verses of Romans 8. The theme of Romans 8, 31-39 is the love of God for His people. God is for His people and only for His people. But a lot of people mistakenly think that God is on their side. I mean, you, you just hear that from everybody. You know, it just blows my mind when you see Pelosi get up and talk about God. You know, I'm like... You just slaughtering babies as fast as you can, but you know, God is on your side, right? Well, Hitler thought God was on Germany's side, right? And we hear that same language from our politicians in this country. Grand claims that, oh yeah, God is on our side, and you know, obviously He's on our side, because we believe in Him. So what about you? Is God on your side? And how do you know He is? Well, as Jeremiah received God's call, 
He trembled at the thought of taking God's word to a stubborn people. But the Lord assured him, the Lord said this to him, They will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares Yahweh, to deliver you. Man, that is, that is people with a powerful statement, I am with you, okay? Because if God is on your side, who cares who's not? Right? I mean, it's a winning thing, all right? John Piper writes this, God is entirely for us and never against us. None of our sickness is a judgment from a condemning judge. None of our broken cars or failed appliances is punishment from God. None of our marital strife is a sign of His wrath. None of our lost jobs is a penalty for sin. None of our wayward children is a crack of the whip of God's retribution. If we are in Christ, God is for us, not against us, in and through all things, all ease and all pain. Now, I think he's a little bit out of line there in the sense that just because God is for us doesn't mean He doesn't chasten us. Because He does chasten us for our sin. And when a believer chooses to live in sin, there's consequences for that. Bad circumstances don't mean that we've sinned. But bad circumstances could be a chastening from the God who is for us. As whom He loves, He chastens. Now, the passage that we want to look at this morning, Romans 8, 31-39, is all about security. Okay, The ultimate security, the greatest security you'll ever think about is your security with the Lord. Our salvation is eternally secure. God is for us. And nothing at all, ever, can separate us from His love. We have assurance. And this assurance gives us hope. And hope strengthens us through every kind of trial or circumstance we're going through. Let me ask you something. Is our salvation ultimately due to our faithfulness to God or to God's faithfulness to us? Now you know if you answer that wrong, it's, you're going to have insecurity. Okay, If it's up to you, you're going to be dealing with a lot of insecurity. Early in this chapter, we see that God has a plan. So let's back up. We... We looked at Romans 8.28 in this series earlier. He says, We know that all things, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those who He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, he also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Alright? So the plan was to justify some people and then glorify those people. And this is an unbroken chain. Whoever God predestined, and that's the idea of laying out beforehand who He wanted, who He was choosing. He calls those people that He predestined and He glorifies those people. He doesn't lose anybody along the way. No one slips through the cracks. Nothing can undo or interrupt the plan of God. It sweeps from foreknowledge to predestination all the way to glorification. We're secure because salvation is all of God. Now, through the years, the subject of eternal security has been hotly debated in theology. You know, there are people who have always believed and still believe that salvation, which is granted in Christ, can be lost. That's just, first of all, I think it's not a biblical position at all. But I think it's a bad position for Christians to hold because you're always like, oh no. But see, people hold to this because they can keep people in line. It's a way to control people. All right, if you don't do this, 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 you might lose your salvation. And people use this to bring fear and to try to keep people under control. If you don't tithe, oh, you could lose yourself. I mean, stupid stuff like that, but they try to use it to keep people in line. Do I have the power to forfeit my salvation by rejecting Christ? By denying what I once believed and just simply stepping away? Or can a vaccine destroy my faith and my eternal security? These questions are answered in this text. In this text, Paul uses seven rhetorical questions. Why seven? 
Well, in Scripture, seven represents qualitative fullness, completeness, totality. This is the complete picture, people, on security. Romans 8.31 says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the first thing we have to ask is, what things? What are the these things? And, of course, there's different views on this. Some people think that he's referring to everything he said so far. Uh, I guess that's possible, but I think Paul is talking more what he has said from Romans 5, 1 to 8. And let me try to explain why. The theme of this section, 8, 31 to 39, is the love of God. And this is the second time in the letter that Paul has spoken of God's love. The first time was in Romans 5, 1 through 11. And the argument of this text is the same argument that he uses in 5, 1 through 11. There's really not even much added here to 5, 1 through 11 in terms of the actual argument. Thomas Schreiner, commenting on Romans 8, 31 through 39, writes this. These verses function as an inclusio with 5, 1 through 11. For both texts feature the confidence that comes from the hope of believers. Now, the theme of 5, 1 through 11 is summed up in 8, 31 through 39. And those who are justified are also glorified because of the love of God effective through the death of Christ. Salvation is secure. And those who have left Egypt are going to be brought to Canaan, even though suffering awaits them on that journey. Now, the parallels between 5, 1 through 11 and 8, 31 through 39 are remarkable. They both stress the certainty of future glory in the midst of suffering. And that's the whole thing. He's he's trying to reestablish or get us to understand here about God's love for us. Because when you're going through bad times, people tend to question that. Because we have this mentality that, you know, if God is for us, then everything's going to be coming up roses. No, no. Okay, you heard the story, the powerful story that Sharon shared this morning. All right? People who go through great afflictions and yet rejoice in their God. So, the whole idea of security brackets this whole section from 5.1 to the end of 8.30. And Paul's question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Expects a negative answer. Okay? Nobody. Nobody. When Paul says, if... God before us. He's not saying maybe He is or maybe He isn't. In the original text, this is a first class condition and it can be translated since God is for us or because God is for us. And there's really no truth more fundamental in all God's Word than this truth that God is for us. Because of Yeshua, once and for all the question is settled. God's for us. He's on our side. All that God is, all that He has... All that He does, He does on behalf of His people. Hopefully you understand the significance of that. If the God who created the universe, the most powerful being that ever existed, is on our side, okay, we're done. We win. Can't can't lose. It's all good. Because He is on our side. But the problem is, people question that. I don't know. I did this. You know, and so maybe he's not on my side. No, people, that's not what he's saying. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Some scholars think this statement preserves part of a primitive hymn or kind of a pre-Pauline confessional. We see the same idea in Psalm 56, 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, God is for me. David knew that God was for Israel. And as Israel journeyed from the land of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land, it was a journey filled with danger. But God's presence was with them. And the Israelites could respond to the fears that welled up in their hearts and cry out, if God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't matter. These words were most likely often repeated as the Roman believers watched the gates being opened in the Colosseum as lions ran to tear their bodies apart. These words would be a triumphant testimony to the faithfulness of God and their future glory. Now the intention is not to say that no one is against them. That's not what he's saying here. But that their opponents or their enemies will not be successful. How do believers know that God is for them? Well, Paul tells us in the next verse. He says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, 
how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? This is a typical Hebrew argument. Arguing from the greater, the, le- the greater to the lesser. It's an a fortiori argument. If God did the greater thing, that is, if He delivered up His Son, if He put His Son to death for us, will He do the lesser thing? That is, kind of taking care of us, giving us what we need, making sure our salvation is secure. We see the same idea in Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, again, an a fortiori argument, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Now, if when we were enemies, when we hated God, He came to us and reconciled us to Himself, now that we've been reconciled and thus have become friends with God, we shall be saved by His life. It's one of the most magnificent statements of the security of the believer that we have in the Bible. If anyone has any question about whether having believed in the Lord Yeshua, you're safe and secure, you just think about this text. It should ease any fears that you have. Because if He saved us when we were enemies, now that we're His friends, He'll surely do something that is less, and that's keep us in the salvation that we have. We shall be saved by His life. In the Greek, there's a particle that intensifies the statement. It can be translated as even, and is commonly used to magnify the action of the verb. You might translate it, He who did not spare even His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Many scholars think that Paul may have had in mind, another situation where a father didn't spare his own son. You know, God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. So he makes the long journey to the mountain of God, where Isaac carried the wood, and Abraham the knife in the fire, and he binds his son on the altar, and he raises the knife to strike the fatal blow, and the Lord stops him. In Genesis 22.12, he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy, or do anything to him, For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, hopefully you can see the similarities here. To a point, the stories run parallel, but only to a point, because Abraham didn't spare his son, but God intervened and saved Isaac. Like Abraham, God didn't spare his son, but this time, the fatal blow fell. He didn't stop himself from putting his son to death. He gave Him up for us all. So the question is, well, who delivered Yeshua to die? The Bible says Judas gave Him up. The Bible says Pilate gave Him up. The Bible says Herod and the Jewish people and the Gentiles gave Him up. The Bible says we gave Him up. It even says Yeshua gave Himself up. But Paul is saying the ultimate thing here that in and behind and through all these human actions, God was giving up His Son to death. This was an action of God. And Peter captured both man's part in crucifying Christ and God's underlying act to give up His Son to die for us. In Acts 2.23, he says, This Yeshua delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He makes it, listen, this was God's plan. This was God's doing. Then he says this, you crucified and killed. So they were involved in that, but it was all part of God's plan. The early disciples understood this, and we see this in Acts 4, 27, 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they're just carrying out the plan of God. So who delivered up Yeshua to die? Octavius Winslow in the 19th century wrote this, Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Then he adds this, In this great transaction we lose sight of his betrayers and his accusers and his murderers, and we see only the Father 
travailing in the greatness of his love to his family. People, the argument here is if God loved us so much that he put to death his son, what else would he do for us? Anything and everything. Verse 32 is an allusion to Isaiah 53.6 in which the father hands over the son to death. Isaiah 53.6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The death of Yeshua was due to the initiative of the Father. The Father willed the Son's death for the benefit of the elect. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. It was the Father's intention from the beginning that the promise He made to Abraham that all nations shall be blessed would be fulfilled through the death of His Son. And Paul says that He gave Him up for us all. Now, some of those who teach universalism would use this verse as to try to make their case. But Paul's not a universalist. When he refers to we or our or us in this text, In the context, he's talking about believers. Remember, Paul is writing to the saints. Look at Romans 1, 6 and 7. He says, including you who are called to belong to Yeshua, the Christ, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. He is writing to the call to those who are loved by God and called saints. This is a message to the saints. Now, the with him here takes us back to our union with Christ. A theme that's hammered out in chapter 5 and chapter 6 of this gospel. All believers are in Christ. We share all he is and has. That's what happens when you trust Christ. You are put in Christ. You, you are made in one with him. You have union with him. So, you know, people talk about losing salvation. I say, you got as much a chance of that happening as Christ does getting kicked out of the Trinity. You're in Him. That's security, people. He says, with Him, graciously give us all things. The term graciously is from the Greek karizomai, which is a cognate of the Greek verb keros. Everything that God gives, even the ongoing provision to His people following their salvation, is from His grace. God's grace in giving believers all things is never earned. It's never limited. The ultimate benefit in this context is eschatological. He's writing the transition saints and says, you're going to be glorified. Believers, God has accepted Christ's death in our place, satisfied eternal justice through Him, and declared us righteous. And since that's the case, then what are we going to do when we struggle with doubts? Because it happens. Well, what we're supposed to do is go back to the source. God didn't spare His own Son, so when you desperately need Him to stand in your place before God's wrath, He didn't spare Him. He put Him up for you. You know, we frequently turn to our experiences and wonder if God loves us. And it's sad in this country because we're so spoiled that the slightest thing seems to cause us to question the love of God. It's not our experience. It's the question we have to ask is, what does the Scripture say? That's the important thing. Experience is never a proof of the love of God. The Word of God is. Are you going through a difficult time during this pandemic that causes you to wonder, has God abandoned us? Then think about God's sacrifice of His Son for you and no longer question His love and faithfulness. That's what I tell people. I don't know if God loves me. You look to Calvary. The greatest example of love you're ever going to get. He put His Son to death for you. Now, verses 33 and 34 use the forensic terminology of a law court. It says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Now, to bring any charge is literally the idea to speak out to. It was used as a judicial term in the ancient world to imply legal accusation. So what is the charge being brought against God's elect? Someone is obviously bringing charges against him, and he says, who can bring any charge? 
God justifies who's going to override that. Well, of course, everybody doesn't agree on what the charge is here, but I want to suggest the charge being brought against them was idolatry. Adultery, I'm sorry. Not idolatry, adultery. All right? So let's go back to Romans 7, 3 and 4. He says, Accordingly, she shall be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. He's making an illustration here. So that you may belong to another, him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. Now, the you here is plural, referring to Jewish believers. Paul draws an inference from the previous illustration noted by you also. Just like the husband died in the previous verse, he says, you also die. Now, to die here is a passive indicative. You were made dead to the law. The passive voice points to the sovereign, gracious work of God in applying the work of Christ to them regarding the reign of sin and the jurisdiction of the law. It points back to our having become united with Christ in His death. You used to be in a covenant relationship with the law, He's telling them. You used to have this obligation to which you are mandated to bring about fulfillment, but that's changed. You were made to die to the law. In other words, literally you were put to death. You were killed in regard to the law. Now, And he says if her husband dies, she's free to marry another. The second husband is Yeshua. She's married to the Old Covenant community, but he died. And now she's married to Yeshua. There's no adultery. Many scholars suggest that in verses 33 and 34, Paul is alluding to Isaiah 50, verses 8 and 9. This marital context for this charge against God's people being adultery, I think, is supported. If we look at Isaiah 58 and 9, he says, He who vindicates me is near... Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord Yahweh helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Now, if we look at the context of these verses, we find that the prophet has been explaining the marital status of Israel after God sent her into exile. We go back to verse 1. Thus says Yahweh, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Later, Isaiah writes, 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul exult in my God, for He has clothed me With garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest in a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Then in chapter 62, he says this, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own desires. You know, Paul could be deliberately feeding off the divine marriage theme, And it could be in this context that the significance of the charge of adultery should be read. Paul is saying, in effect, there is no charge that can be brought that would nullify the relationship that God is bringing His church into. Consummation of divine marriage. There's no charge at all that's going to affect this in any way. And if Paul is alluding to Isaiah 50, then the term, the elect, is even more striking. Because now it's the church not Israel, who is God's chosen servant. Believers can face the day of judgment with confidence, just as God will vindicate the servant in Isaiah, so too the heavenly court will clear believers. There's no condemnation. Paul started Romans 8 with that. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. There's no one that can bring an accusation against us. There's no one that can say anything that's going to disrupt God's plan here for us. So here's the point. Above God, there's no higher court. All right, And if God is the one who acquits you, if He declares you righteous in His sight, no one can appeal, no one can call for a mistrial, no one can look to another court higher 
God's sentence is final and it's total. Okay? Amen? In verse 34, he says, Who is to condemn? Christ Yeshua is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is it at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Here Paul assumes what he stated earlier in chapter 3, 21-26, that the death of Yeshua on behalf of believers satisfied God's wrath against them. God alone condemns and God alone justifies. And if God has covered us with the righteousness of Christ, if God has granted to us His own righteousness, not ours, then no accusation can stand at all. None. We have been covered by the very righteousness of Christ. He says, who was raised? What does the resurrection declare? Well, it proves that God has accepted the sacrifice of Yeshua in our place. It verifies that His death satisfied the legal demands against us so that we are now accepted by God. Resurrection shows that the law can no longer make legal demands of eternal death on those for whom Christ died. There's no longer condemnation because God raised Yeshua from the dead. He says, who is at the right hand of God. Now, the right hand refers to the place of authority, the place of rule, the place of supremacy. This speaks of the sovereignty and dominion of Christ. He's at the right hand, the place of authority. Psalm 110 says this, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, you can't be conquered. He's the supreme Lord. He's at the right hand of God. And he says, who indeed is interceding for us. You know, while Israel wandered in the wilderness, they had a high priest who constantly represented them before God, according to Hebrews 5, 1-4, Hebrews 9, 7-10. Throughout their journey, they faced spiritual and moral temptations, as well as dangers from enemies who sought to prevent them from reaching their inheritance. And because of this, the ministry of the high priest was crucial. He offered sacrifice for the sins of the people. He interceded for them. Well, the Bible says Yeshua does this same thing for the new covenant people of God. The writer of Hebrews put it this way. Consequently, He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Yeshua saves forever. Not only does Christ's priesthood prove grace to help or provide grace to help in time of need, it also keeps us secure in Him. No matter how bad we mess up, He saves to the uttermost. Because it's His work that is primary and supreme. Now in verses 35-39, through we move away from the law court language and He moves into the relational language of love. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer here expected is nothing. Nothing shall separate us. The genitive Christos is subjective, denoting Christ's love for believers. And here Paul lists seven afflictions that represent many of the problems that Paul had already experienced in his ministry. All right? Apart from the sword, which he's going to face later, he had already experienced all these afflictions. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 11-13, Now Paul is giving a testimony here, and I want you to think of Paul in, uh, in light of the health, wealth, gospel here. Okay? And see how much he lines up with that. Alright? He says, the present, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our own hands. That doesn't sound like the health, wealth, gospel to me. Paul must have missed out somehow, some way, that he's having this rough time, okay? I mean, he's probably one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, and yet somehow, he's missed out on this health, wealth, gospel. When reviled, he says, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, he says. Then he says, well, shall tribulation separate us? And tribulation means oppressing or pressure. It came from the language of the vineyards. The treading of grapes, it's the pressure that bursts. Tribulation runs the gamut to express that which 
puts pressure against living faithfully as a Christian. Whatever it is, whatever kind of problem is coming against you, will it separate you from Christ? Nope. How about distress? It means to be in narrow straits, whether physically, mentally, or emotionally. How about persecution? It means that you're literally hunted down for harm. A common experience of many Christians, even in our own day. All right? Will that separate us? We heard a story again this morning from Sharon. Did that separate him from his love? It just seems to strengthen him in his love for God. How about famine or nakedness? This could be results of persecution. Okay, because you're persecuted, you don't have, you know, economically, maybe you're cut off. You don't have what you need to take care of yourself anymore. You're not in a good state. Will that separate you? He says, no. Or danger. This could refer to any kind of danger. And then he says, the sword. This implies the ultimate opposition, martyrdom for faith. Now, all those were eschatological sufferings of the transition saints. They were dealing with this. But I want you to realize that all these things could happen to us. We could have persecution. I think it's starting. We're seeing it right now where these Democratic governors are saying, oh, the church is not essential and you can't meet. It's minor so far for us. But you know why it's minor? Because when the governor said, the churches can't meet, the church said, okay, yes, my Lord. They bowed to the governor and said, we'll, we won't meet. It's not that important for us to meet. We'll wait for you to change your mind. The church would have persecution if they said, hey, governor, take a hike. We're meeting. This is important to us. And, they, and the governors are telling churches, when you do meet on a limited basis, you can't have the Lord's Supper. Really? So you're dictating what we do when we worship now. If this doesn't scare you, something's wrong, okay? Not about a virus, it's about control. And as long as the church is bowing to the governors, they'll keep taking more and more and more. Of course, the church won't be persecuted because it's doing whatever they're told. The early church didn't do that, okay? The church around the world doesn't do that. I mean, they're hunted down and put to death if they meet, and yet they still meet. And yet today, believers are cowering behind the screen watching something because uh, I don't want to risk it. We could have persecution. We could have trouble. We could someday face the sword. I mean, if, they, if we go along with them, they could, well, we could just tell them whatever we want. We could go through all these things, people. We could be persecuted for our faith. They could happen. But verse 36 is even stronger. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. These are believers. We're being killed all the day. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is what was happening to the believers. And in, you know, this is the context here. They're going through great persecution. Some are being killed, and he's telling them, listen, you're secure in God's love. Don't let your circumstances rock you in this. You're secure. You're going to make it to glory. And here Paul quotes Psalm 44 as evidence that the suffering and trials of the present faith in Christ are nothing new. Believers in previous centuries faced the same issues. The words in the original psalm express the perplexity of the people of God in the face of inexplicable sufferings. In other words, why, Lord, why are we going through this? The psalm likely came out of the trials during the post-exilic period, the time around Ezra, Nehemiah, prophets Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. It begins with a historical reflection, the psalm does. It's a meditation on God's deliverance and the planning of Israel in early centuries, all looking back to the Exodus story. In other words, the psalm starts with God delivered them from Egypt, Psalm 44, 1-3. To the choir master, a maskel of the sons of Korah, O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, In the days of old, you with your own hand drove out the nations. But them you planted. You afflicted the peoples. But them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your face. For you delighted in them. And then following with a confession of God as king in confidence, they delivered 
they bow before, they're, they're just saying that, listen, God, you're absolutely in control. You're sovereign. And yet in their anguish, we see one of the Psalms' longest stanzas. Though they had continued in the faithfulness to the Lord, they still they felt rejected because persecution is coming. They felt like they had been given over to their enemies as sheep to be eaten. Dishonor and humility overwhelmed them due to the reproaching them. He says in Psalm 44, 9 through 16, But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. They're losing battles and they're like, What's happening here, Lord? You have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoiled. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter. And have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples, All day long my disgrace is before me. And shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reveler, at the sight of the enemy and avenger. Then they plead their case. They had not turned their back on the Lord or turned from following Him, yet it seemed as though He had given them over to their enemies. We see that in verse 17-19. through And as happens so often in Hebrew poetry, the answer to their dilemma comes in the last stanza, verses 20 through 26. There they understand something of the reason for their plight. Yet, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Does that sound familiar? See, the reason for their suffering was precisely because of their union with the Lord. God was not removed from them in spite of their circumstances. He had not abandoned them. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Now the last word is precisely what Paul had in mind when teaching us the assurance comes through Christ's love. The steadfast love. This refers to God's covenant mercy or His loyal love for those whom He redeemed. He doesn't abandon the objects of His redeeming love. They do go through difficulty. They do go through persecution. But He has not abandoned them. Paul quotes from this psalm because it reflects the experiences of the New Covenant pilgrim community. The Old Covenant remnant, the New Testament church, suffering in spite of their integrity, in spite of their faithfulness to God, they still suffered. Too often did we think that as long as we're faithful, we won't have any problems. No. It's those problems that drive us to God. Have you noticed that? You notice when everything's going the way you want it to go? Your prayer life is kind of weak because I don't need to pray. Everything's cool. And then you start having problems and it's like, oh yeah, God. And you turn to God and Lord, I need some help here. And it has has a way of driving us to Him. You know, martyrdom is a terrible reality for some of God's people scattered around the world. And we hear about this every week as they present the persecuted church. We hear about things that are just even hard to believe. But hopefully you see from this text that Yeshua still loves you even though you may be going through a hard time. Yeshua still loves you though you may be out of money. He still loves you though your body may be wasting away. He still loves you though you may be persecuted for your faith. He still loves you though your marriage may be falling apart. He still loves you though the world may be against you. Yeshua loves you though you may feel like a lamb being taken to slaughter. You know, trouble can take away a lot of things from the people of God. It can take away our happiness. Right? I mean, wow, we're in a difficult situation. I heard one preacher say that, you know, the kingdom of God is unaffected by whoever is president. And I agree with that in the sense that the kingdom of God goes on. Okay? He can't stop it, he can't affect it. But, here's where I disagree. Who's president or who's ever in charge affects the quality of life the citizens are experiencing while under that reign. 
okay? And what would you choose? Well, I want to be a tyrant. Let me be under, let me go to North, if you really want that, go to North Korea. Go there and say, hey, I'd like to come in. I'm a Christian and I'd like to be persecuted here because this is the worst place on earth to be a Christian. So let me in. No, nobody really wants to do that. We don't want that persecution. We'd rather have a great life. And all through, you know, the Word of God, we see God blessing His people when they're faithful to Him. Trouble can take away things from us. It can take away our happiness. It can take away our prosperity. Trouble can take away our health. It can take our friends away. But there's one thing that trouble cannot take away from us. Trouble trouble cannot remove us from the love of God, which is in Christ. It can't touch that. But again, so many people, when things don't go the right way, they think, God doesn't love me anymore. No! He loves you every bit as much. Knowing all these things, he says, we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Now, these are talk, this is talking to people who are being martyred, who are suffering for their faith, and he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors, there's one word in the Greek, it's hupernekao. You're familiar with that word, nekao, right? Nike, conquer. That's what it's the word for conquer. He says you're more than conquerors. You're more than winners. We are hooper, super conquerors, sweeping victory, overwhelming victory. The anticipation of suffering and death should not deter the members of the pilgrim community because we are super conquerors. In all these things is possibly the translation of a Hebraism, which means despite all these things. Despite all these things, all these sufferings we're going through, we're more than conquerors. We're going to be victorious. The history of the Old Covenant people demonstrates the faithfulness of God and His commitment to His people. Not even judgment and exile can bring God's people away from the love of God. His covenant to Abraham was not abandoned. It's just moving towards fulfillment in their day. Paul wanted these transition states to understand that their glorification was not founded on their goodness. It was, not found, it was founded totally and only on God's election. It was not founded on their wisdom. It was founded on God's call. It was not founded on their personal submission. It was founded on God's justification. It was not founded on their perseverance. It was founded upon the power of God to keep them. And what holds that all together is His underlying covenant love for His people. 38.39 says, For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Yeshua, our Lord. So Paul says, I'm sure. I'm sure. The the words mean to be fully and absolutely persuaded on the basis of evidence that cannot be denied. He uses a perfect passive indicative verb. The perfect tense means something like this. I was persuaded in the past. I'm fully persuaded in the present. I used to believe this. I still believe it today. The passive voice here is important. Had Paul inferred that his confidence rested on his experience or his response to God, then he would have used the active voice. That is, demonstrating that it was what he had personally done that brought him assurance. Then we'll be forced to compare our experience with Paul's. Well, we've got to be like Paul if we want to make sure we have this. No. Paul is not the standard for assurance. He used the passive voice, which means that he had nothing to do with the action, but rather he was acted upon. His confidence rested in the work of another, not his own. The word here, separate, means to violently tear from, to completely divide. Paul says that nothing can happen to us that can finally completely separate us from the love of God. So what he's saying is there's no state of being in which you could ever be separated from the love of God. He's trying to comfort these believers who are being persecuted for their faith. Don't worry, he says, nothing will ever separate you. Ever. Now, I've heard people say, who believe you can lose your salvation, they say, yeah, but I could separate myself. Really? 
You could take yourself out of the love of God. Yes, I can just decide I don't want anymore, and I can walk away. I can take myself. Well, look at the text says, nor anything else in all creation. So are you part of creation? Then I guess you can't separate yourself. You can't even separate yourself from the love of God. Why? Because those He loves, He loves forever. Those whom God saves, He saves forever. He justifies the ones He justifies forever. If you, by faith, have come to Yeshua for salvation, He will never cast you out, and He will never allow you to try to cast yourself out. Just look at what He says. I'm sure that what? Dwell death or life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else will be... He's covering all the bases. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. This chapter 8 started out with there's no condemnation to those in Christ. None. You don't get condemned by God. Alright? And then it ends with no separation. No condemnation, no separation. People, this is security. This is absolute security. If you are in union with Christ by faith, then all these promises belong to you. You will never be eternally condemned. You will never be separated from God's eternal covenant love. Oh, believers, this is something to glory in. You know, people, you know, they have this, well, you can't be eternally secure. That would just, you know, then you can do whatever you want and you still get to go to heaven. Listen, if you're not eternally secure, <laughs> how frustrating. You never know, oh, God, does God love me now? Did I mess up and now He's not loving me? Or What a frustrating way to live. But when you have the absolute assurity that God is for you, this gives you confidence in life. You can serve Him because you know you belong to Him. People, we need to glory in this. We need to apply this. We need to enjoy. We need to sing about this. We need to rejoice in God's forever covenant love for His people. If ever He loved us, He loves us forever. And again, keep in mind that the context here is the suffering that they're going through. Difficult times. Because that causes us to start questioning, doubting. Don't doubt. Look to Calvary. It's not about your experience. It's about God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the ultimate security that we have in You. That it doesn't really matter what happens in this life. It affects our quality of life, but it will never affect our relationship with You. It won't affect our eternity. They can come up with all the vaccines and viruses they want to try to eliminate the God gene. But Father, we're secure in You. Thank You for Your Word, Lord. Thank You for Your grace to us, Your children. We understand that if ever You loved us, You love us forever. Thank You for that, Lord. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? What anything we talked about? Just so you know, it's 72 years. I don't know, it just feels cold. It takes over to 76. 72 and all them smart uh, I don't know who this question is from. They don't say, but um, it says, Thank you for allowing our questions. I'm wondering, since God has taken away our sin in Christ, and God can still chasten us, since God sees us as his, since God sees us as his son, does this mean he chastens his son, our Jesus? Blessing and thank you. No, uh, it doesn't mean he chastens his son. See, God sees us. He sees the reality of our life. Okay, it's not like, can't see what they're doing because they're in Christ and they're all covered. That's our position, people. Our position is we're righteous in Christ. We have to make a distinction between our position and our practice. Our practice is supposed to line up for who we are, but that's what God chastens us for is our practice. Because sometimes we don't live like we should. We don't do what we should. So he, as a good father, spanks his children and says, get in line. No, He doesn't chasten His Son. Because we are in Christ, that's our position, our unity. But our practice is important. And see, nothing will ever change our position. Our practice can't alter that. But our practice can get really messed up at times. And He has to deal with us because of that. Oh, boy. (laughs) All right, Tanya. She says, do you think the George Floyd news is a false flag to distract us? 
Absolutely. Okay? Absolutely. Listen, there is so much wrong with that George Floyd story. So much. Watch the video. You got a cop kneeling on his neck like he's posing, you know, for eight minutes. Everybody get their picture? Everybody get the videos? You know, look what I'm doing. There's so much. There's so much about that that is wrong, okay? Um, And, you know, I said this earlier. I don't know if I said it to you all, but I said it as we we met earlier that, listen, between now and election, we're going to see all kinds of hell break loose, okay? The deep state, the Ds, they're going to do whatever they can do to stop this. So don't, you know, I mean, and, you know, these riots are not about Floyd, okay? It's not, oh, we're, we're mad because you killed a black man. No. These are people being brought in from out of town, professional demonstrators. They got pallet loads of bricks being delivered. It's all set up, okay? It's all a distraction. And we have to, you know, you got to work hard to try to find out what's actually happening, what, what actually is the truth. I mean, if you saw the videos of the ambulance that showed up to pick him up after he was supposedly dead, policemen get out of the ambulance. When do you know policemen drive an ambulance? And they don't try to, you know, any ambulance, when they, people, paramedics get on the scene, they try to do something, stabilize the person immediately. They just picked him up, threw him on a stretcher, and threw him in the back, and off they went. So many things about that are wrong, okay? I know, I know, I'm a conspiracy theorist, okay? Well, I just like to examine the facts, okay? And just, I listen, people. We have to question everything. We really do. We have to question everything because so much. We know people are lying to us. We know the news media. They, they, you know. It, I think it was irony that they smashed CNN and destroyed their headquarters. I'm like, CNN is fueling this thing. They're trying to push us to race wars, and then they're building. And I'm like, wow, that's. That's real irony right there, okay? Stan, we're getting off topic, I know, but I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I don't know if it was a song or something Michael Kors said a long time ago about God. He said, he cannot love us more, but he cannot love us less. Amen. Okay, I'm not sure I understand. The question is, what, what might we offer to those who are destroying our cities? The folks on the streets versus those who create and fund the planned anarchy. Well, see, that's the thing. I, I think there's some legitimate people out there that just, you know, they want to complain. This is not right, okay? This shouldn't happen. All right, we agree with that. But when you start looting and, you know, that's not anything to do with your complaint against this. That's you being a thug and destroying somebody else's property and stealing stuff that's not yours. You know, and people people are upset at the protesters. We have to understand, the people who are legitimately protesting, this has nothing to do with them, okay? There are paid people in the midst causing the damage, okay? They're paid. You know, George Soros has made a pledge to destroy America. He'll use all his money to destroy it, and he's paying these people... Like Veronica showed you earlier, there's ads in the paper. You can be a professional demonstrator, a professional looter, you know, all this stuff. They're trying to ruin And we have to keep the balance here. We have to realize these, some of these people are just grieving over what's happened. You know, to be a black man in America, yeah, that's a scary thing. All right? I have a grandson who's biracial, and I talk to him, and I tell him, listen, you get pulled over by the cops, you just say, yes, sir, no, sir, you be as polite. And, you know, it doesn't matter what he asks you to do. When a guy with a gun tells you to do something, you ought to do it. Okay, whether you agree with it or not, Set, let it go to the courts later. But don't, you know, get in an argument because it's it can be a dangerous thing. It really can for black Americans. And I, you know, it's just it's sad. Okay, but was this legitimately something that happened or was it all set up? That's above my pay grade. Okay, but I'm skeptical. Let me put it that way. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> Someone took a picture, Steve took a picture of my mug here and sent it to me and says, does this stand for, we need to question everything. Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. That's what the whole Q movement is about. It's questioning everything. It's getting information and trying to figure out what's really going on here. Okay? You can't believe the narrative you're hearing. You've got to do some research. I, I've always thought it's important to be a Berean in every aspect. Not just Bible study, but, you know, sort out everything. You know, you're hearing things. Don't just believe what you hear. You know, what we tend to do, if we like what we hear, we believe it. Oh, that sounds good. I believe that. And we charge off, you know, saying it over and over. Totally fake news. You know, even if you like it, do a little research and find out, is this really the truth? Because we do our own self-damage when we're pushing stuff that's not true. That somebody else said that we like, so we keep pushing it. Do the research on it and find out. You know, is this, you know, when I got the, the video, you saw the video about everyone saying, this is Bill Gates, this is Bill Gates in this video. I would like it to have been Bill Gates. I don't like him, Okay. But when I look at the video, like I said, in 4K, it's like, that's not Bill Gates. Okay? So, I mean, he's bad enough. We don't need to invent more stuff to put on him. (laughs) It says, hey, David, all history is made of conspiracies. The successful are the victors. Did people conspire to kill Messiah? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. But behind, and here's the cool thing about that. There was definitely a conspiracy to destroy Yeshua. Why? They were jealous. They hated him. And they did kill him. But behind it all, God's sovereign plan is being worked out. And I think that's true today, people. God's plan is being worked out. It's being carried out. 